Good morning. So last time I preached, I preached on a book that many of you told me you had never heard preached on before, and I illustrated it with a famous movie. And today, neither of those things are changing. So please turn with me to the book of Haggai. The easiest way to get there is start in Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and then just keep turning backwards. You'll get to Malachi, then to Zechariah, and then to Haggai. It's the third to last book of the Old Testament. So there's a lot to know about Haggai for this to make any sense, so bear with me just a second. We're gonna blow through some of this background. So Haggai appears as a character in Ezra chapter five and six, and Ezra and Nehemiah are two books immediately following the Babylonian exile. So if you don't know what the Babylonian exile is, what it was was Israel, who is God's people, were acting in disobedience. They were not living as if they were God's people, so as a result, as discipline from God, they were sent into exile at the hands of Babylon. And this lasted for 70 years. They were mistreated. They were away from their home. The temple, their home was eventually destroyed in the middle of this. It just wasn't good, okay? So at the end of the 70 years, Babylon was eventually overthrown by Persia, and Persian rule was a lot more lenient to Israel. They let them practice their customs a lot more freely. They let them return home. So we're seeing in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah of the Israelites trying to reestablish who they are. They're trying to rebuild their homes and just see what it's like to be God's people after the exile. And in these two books, we see three rulers of Israel, Zerubbabel, who's what, who we'll talk about through Haggai, Ezra himself, and Nehemiah himself. And each one ends pretty anticlimactically. It builds up, like we're gonna see this big, grand and glorious finish, and then the people don't ever really change. They don't fulfill the potential that they have. And that's what Haggai is trying to correct. So whenever they're coming off of this exile, they're coming off this terrible 70 years, he's trying to show them, well, your hearts were in the wrong place, and that's why you were sent into exile. So let's change that now. Let's change where our hearts are now that we're back home, okay? So what I want everybody to do with me is raise your hand, bring it over your shoulder, and give yourself a good pat on the back, because you have officially made it through 2020. One of the strangest, craziest years of my life, and I'm sure everyone else's as well, because how long have we been saying, oh, if we just make it through 2020, still 2020, there's light at the end of the tunnel, we're almost done. Well, now we made it. And now what? How are we going to look differently because of 2020? How are we going to let it shape us and turn us to God and look more like him? 2020 was in no way the exile, but there are certainly some similarities that we can take away from Haggai's teaching as they were coming back from the exile of how they can look more like God as a result of what they had been through. So Haggai addresses three main issues and then his, before he closes, and then he shows the need to turn their hearts to God. And the first thing that he does is talks about misplacing priorities. Felt like the Israelites had their priorities in the wrong place. So the very first thing we need to look at is Haggai makes this very clear that it's not him who is talking, but that it's God. We see in verse one, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Verse two, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse three, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. We see this repeated numerous times throughout the book. 
and we see language like the Lord Almighty declares. This is very important both for the original audience and for us. If this is God talking, it's probably pretty important. We should probably do what God is telling us to do, right? So read verses two through six with me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house, this being the temple. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So in other words, God's not real happy with where they're placing their priorities, and it shows. The Israelites have returned from exile are putting more time and effort into their own homes, into their own personal comfort, than rebuilding the temple. Therefore, they're prioritizing themselves, their own necessities, over God. However, this focus on self has led to economic failure. Remember verse six, they've planted much but harvested little. They don't have enough. They're not warm. In Matthew 6, it talks about that whenever we're following God with all of our hearts, he's going to provide these things. That doesn't excuse us from work, but he's going to bless the work that we're putting in whenever we're following him and doing it for him. Israelites weren't doing that. They were doing this work for themselves, and therefore they were failing. Read verses 7 through 11 with me. The same sentiment is reiterated and elaborated a little bit. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So the remedy to these economic failures is simply to focus on God. He's going to bless this whenever the focus is on him on rebuilding the simple and not personal priorities. God has not blessed the Israelites working because there has not been focus on him or his desires. The idea is that whenever the focus is turned to the temple and God as a whole, that things will start to turn up. So verses 12 through 15, we see Zerubbabel, again the governor, following in obedience to this command. And then verses 13 through 15 show the Spirit working and stirring the people to this, and they start prioritizing the building of the temple and God over their own comfort, over their own needs. Whenever I was a freshman in college, I played in a church softball league at my church in Amarillo whenever I went to my community college. And I just needed sports, so I agreed to play in this league. I played catcher because that's where they put you whenever you're bad. And there was one game, I don't remember exactly what happened. There was a lot of a blur. But there's a player running towards home plate, and I'm going after the ball. And all of a sudden, this player running towards home plate thinks it's a good idea to dive 
head first in the home plate. Next thing I know, I'm face first in the dirt, and I'm laying there, and about 30 seconds go by, and I stop to think, is nobody gonna come to like, make sure I'm alive or anything? And so I roll over, and I see this person that's just dove in head first, laying completely limp across home plate. And there's people huddled around him, and his 15, 16-year-old daughter has been over screaming in hysterics, you can't leave me, you have to be okay. And I'm just standing there in my 18-year-old mind going, well, I just killed a man in church league softball. And so finally, he starts to come to, there was a paramedic on his team that was helping him come to, he regains consciousness, there's just blood gushing from the back of his head. And finally, whenever the paramedic got him stabilized and everything, they took him to the hospital. Fast forward a week, I'm playing softball again, he comes to the games just to watch the games. He had to get 13 staples in the back of his head to get the bleeding to stop. 13 staples, right? I was blown away that he even showed up again, and then he was playing the next week. So then the next time we play that team, we're talking again before the game, and I don't remember exactly what was said, but another player on his team said, yeah, I think if we do any sliding tonight, it'll be feet first, you know, because he just had to get 13 staples in the back of his head because he dove head first. The guy looks at him and goes, what are you talking about? I dove head first last week. He just looked at him like, are you nuts? He goes, yeah, a few staples in the back of my head isn't going to stop me. And again, in my 18-year-old brain, I'm standing there thinking, church league softball, living. <laughs> What's more important here? Being able to support your wife and kids or scoring a run in church league softball. The thing is, though, is we all have a church league softball in our life. We can all point to something that we were focusing on our crops and our paneled houses over the rebuilding of the temple. None of these things that the Israelites were doing were bad things. They were working, and they were working hard, just with the wrong focus. They weren't focused on God and his glory. They were focused on themselves and what they thought they needed. Personally, I've seen in my life, God has shown me that far too often, I focus far too much on academics. I did very well, but it was at the cost of sleep and rest and mental health. And that's not what God's design is. He wants us to work hard, but he wants it to be for him, not for ourselves. And that's whenever we're going to start to suffer. So as we enter 2021, what can you do or change to prioritize God or better prioritize what God prioritizes and desires? The second thing that Haggai addresses in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is shattered expectations. He's addressing the shattered expectations of the Israelites. So, as I just talked about, I played softball, I'm a big sports fan, and naturally, growing up in the Texas Panhandle, I've always been a big Dallas Cowboys fan. And year after year, I leave the season disappointed. So, year after year, we always hear, yeah, the Ball didn't bounce our way last year, but we're back this year. We've got a great quarterback. We've got a great running back. The defense, yeah, they're, they're figuring it out. And year after year, they don't. Uh, we always hear people saying, yep, the Cowboys favorites to win the Super Bowl this year. We don't. Uh, it just has never worked out that way. And growing up watching Cowboys games every week with my dad, there would be this big climactic ending that we think was going to be this great and glorious time. And all of a sudden, our quarterback 
would turn the ball over in the fourth quarter, and he would tell me stories of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, these great players that as soon as they walked out on the field, crowds were on their feet, they were excited, they knew that it was going to end spectacularly. I never got that. (laughs) So this is what the Israelites were expecting, right? They would return home. Their circumstances had changed, so everything would just return to normal, right? Well, not exactly. So verse 1 tells us that this is about six weeks after Haggai's initial message. Read verse 3 with me. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? A little context here. This story plays out as more of a narrative in Ezra chapter 3. Remember, we see Haggai as a person in Ezra. And this is once the Israelites started rebuilding the temple, they laid the foundation and people who remembered the original temple that was destroyed in the exile, they wept. Because it was not anything what they remembered. This new temple did not compare, it did not match up to what they remembered. Ezra 3.12 tells us, while you were rejoicing from the younger people, the people who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple wept when they saw the foundation of the new one. They were disappointed. They were discouraged because this was not as great as they expected coming off the 70 years of suffering. But this disappointment and discouragement is curved a little bit in verses four and five. Read those with me. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So God instructs the people to be strong because he is with them. His spirit remains among them and tells them not to fear. This is very similar to the language that we see in the well-known verse of Joshua 1.9 that says, Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This was an address to the Israelites right after Moses had died, and they were concerned, they were scared for what the future held because their leader that had just been with them for so long was gone. It's the same thing here. They're scared. They're disappointed. They don't know what the future holds because what they had known for so long was no longer there. But God tells them, I am still with you. I told you this. I made this covenant with you and I delivered you out of Egypt thousands of years ago. That covenant wasn't just for then. It wasn't just after Moses died. It's forever. This is not a finite promise, but it's permanent. I will be with you and I will not cease to be with you. And then verses six through seven tell us why they need not fear. Read those with me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. This is a sign of hope the coming of Christ. He is shaking the nations with Jesus who is so radical that anything that he touches will not be the same. 
he is coming and offering peace and this idea that he's desired by all nations, everybody desires Jesus whether they realize it or not. They realize that they need that hope and that peace. They just may not know where it comes from. See, this Christmas, I needed Christmas far more than I ever had. I needed that reminder that Jesus had come and he's coming again and with him comes hope and peace in the midst of all this chaos. The Haggai shows us in verse nine, read that with me, that the peace and glory is coming. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty, and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. You see, this temple he's talking about, this is Jesus. He's coming and he's bringing hope and it'll be far more glorious than what we could ever do to <clears throat> store hope for ourselves. Even though this new temple is a disappointment, God is saying there's going to be something far greater than the four walls that you could ever put up that will not disappoint. So this summer, I was leaving for a mission trip to Washington, and about two or three days before I left for the trip, I started coughing. You know, in normal circumstances, you cough, you take some cough medicine, and you go on your merry way. Well, in 2020, you're going to expose the entire world if you have a cough, right? So I go to the doctor to make sure I'm good to go on this mission trip, and he tells me essentially that I'm coughing because I'm congested and tells me to take Mucinex. And so I leave the doctor frustrated and annoyed. If you know me very well, I don't get mad. I get frustrated and annoyed. That's just common for me. And so I get home and I tell my mom what the doctor said, and I'm frustrated that I just spent money on a doctor, a prescription that I didn't think was necessary and that he basically just told me to take Mucinex. And I said something along the lines of, I hate this world, this is just dumb. And so she let me vent, she let me air my frustrations. She left and came back a few minutes later and said, well, isn't it a good thing that you're not satisfied with what this world has to offer? Isn't it a good thing that you're frustrated? Because if you weren't, then there would be no need for the hope of Christ. There would be no need for the perfection that's to come if you had perfection now. And that was such a sweet reminder of where I needed to put my focus. And I, as I'm sure we all are, though I'm thankful for it, I'm so glad to have 2020 behind us. But as John said last week, there's nothing magical or mystical about the turn of the calendar. We can't put our hope in 2021. See, there's a vaccine coming, and that's great, and that's an answered prayer, and that's exciting, and something to be so thankful for. But there's a lot of things that a vaccine isn't going to fix in our world. See, a vaccine is not going to help the fact that the week of Christmas, specifically black churches, were being burned down in upstate New York. It doesn't change the fact that there were swastikas being spray-painted across Jewish neighborhoods while they were trying to celebrate Hanukkah. It doesn't change the fact that there will be natural disasters such as tornadoes, earthquakes, and hurricanes. It doesn't change the fact that there was a bomb set off in downtown Nashville Christmas morning. A vaccine is not going to fix the hatred and the division that surrounds us. See, if 2021 were perfect, there would be no need for Christ or for us to focus on him and the perfection that we as believers have waiting for us. Only the blood and work of Christ 
can be the ultimate hope. It's the only thing that can overcome the devastation that we see regularly. If we put our hope in 2021, we're going to be bitterly disappointed, just as the Israelites were in the new temple. But Christ has come, and he's coming again, and that's what we have to put our hope in. The third thing that Haggai addresses, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, is a call to faithfulness. He's trying to bring the Israelites back to faithfulness. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the beginning of it because it's pretty wordy, but just in summary, verses 10 through 13 shows a dialogue with Haggai and the priests who were experts in Levitical law. And he asked them, if they have sacred food and touch other food with it, will that food then become sacred? They answered, no. He says, okay, well, if you go touch something that's defiled, such as a dead body, and then go touch food, will that food then become defiled? And they said, well, of course, it's unclean. But then he kind of turns this on his head, and in verse 14 shows that that's the state of the Israelites. Read verse 14 with me. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. See, though they were now doing God's work of rebuilding the temple, their hearts were still not in the right place. It didn't matter that they were rebuilding as they had yet to humble themselves before the Lord and repent and truly turn their hearts to God, and therefore their work was defiled. The temple was not sacred because they had not put themselves before God. Haggai is saying here that it doesn't matter how noble or great our actions are, if it's not truly for the glory of God with a repented heart that is turned towards him, his blessing will not abound. There's no reward for it. Verses 15 through 18 show us similarly what we see in chapter 1 of the consequences of not turning to God, of not repenting, that they only had half the grain they expected, they didn't have enough to drink, and that God, in order to get their attention, had struck their work with blight, mildew, and hail. This discipline was a sign of God's love because he wanted them to come back to him. Hebrews 12, 6 says that the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Then verse 19 shows us the result of turning to God as his blessing returns to the people. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive oil had not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. This is not to say that as soon as we repent and are following God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that everything will be easy, everything will be great. In his commentary on Haggai, John Calvin says, it often happens that those who sincerely and from the heart serve God are deprived of earthly blessings because God intends to elevate their minds to the hope of eternal reward. We know that when we truly turn to God, there will be blessing, reward, and strengthening. There will also be hardships along the way. They're meant to make us stronger and in some shape or fashion point us back to him. See, I have a goal in 2021 to run 1,000 miles over the course of the year. But it doesn't matter if I run all of that, if I don't make some sort of change along with that, if I don't stop eating Whataburger three times a week or making midnight Taco Bell runs, I'm not going to see a whole lot of results. I'm not going to be in great shape. I'm still not going to feel super well. 
We have to make changes in order to fully follow God and see the blessing and the glory of our work for him. We have to repent of the sin that is in our life. So as we enter the new year, what in your life is holding you back from fully pursuing God? What is God trying to get your attention on? And what do you need to change or give up and repent from to truly and purely and wholeheartedly serve him? See, the beauty of this, though, is this isn't on you or me, but it's a dependence on God's forgiveness and the Holy Spirit to turn our hearts towards him. Because the hope that we've talked about, that Christ has come and died for our sins, covers our failings, and through his grace and sacrifice, we can freely turn to God. And the last thing that Haggai does is he gives us a future hope, a coming hope. Whenever I was little, anytime I would get in trouble, my parents were mad at me. I would always wait for them to call me buddy. That's why I knew things were getting a little bit better. Whenever they were mad, things weren't great, but I knew as soon as they started calling me buddy, whenever they cooled off a little bit and we were talking about what I'd done, they called me buddy. They weren't quite as mad anymore. Things were turning up. And so we see that a lot in these minor prophets. We see the prophets give the Israelites or whoever they're addressing a swift kick to the pants and then at the end give them a sign of hope, saying, yeah, you've messed up, but there's something greater than you coming. Verses 21 and 22 show that whenever Christ returns, that no power will be greater than him, that he will overthrow the wickedness of the world. And then we have our sweet spot in verse 23, the closing verse of the book. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. See, this is the beauty of this, that God has chosen him. He's like his signet ring. He is the chosen one. This is the chosen people. But as we talked about, in Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel failed. The people failed to turn their hearts fully to him. That's why we have that anticlimax in those two books. So how is he this chosen one? Well, we see in Matthew chapter one that Zerubbabel falls in the Davidic line, that his rule is a foreshadowing of Christ, that Jesus is coming as the new Zerubbabel, as the greater leader. He's going to fill in all the gaps, all the cracks of Zerubbabel's leadership. He will not fail, and he is going to be that perfection. So after the exile, expectations were really high. There was a lot of pressure on the leaders and the return to Israel for things to be right. A few years ago, a really big movie, superhero movie, came out called Avengers Endgame, or sorry, Avengers Infinity War. Now at the end of the movie, our heroes failed. The bad guy won, and half of our heroes ended up dying. So fans were left waiting a year for the follow-up movie to see what happens. And tickets sold out to this movie like crazy. Within 24 hours, opening weekend was sold out. The movie made $307 million opening weekend alone, and people such as myself waited in virtual line for over an hour just to get their tickets. People couldn't wait to see what was going to happen, how these failures were going to be resolved. 
And so as we're sitting through the three hour long movie, we're waiting to see how our heroes are going to succeed and they fail again. And as our lone remaining hero is standing in the dark, ominous backdrop as the bad guy's army is about to come and wipe everything out, all of a sudden we see a little hole open up in the sky and this little trumpet comes in the background. All of a sudden our heroes come rushing back to save the day. They fight in this big climax and it's victorious and the bad guy falls. You see, they needed something greater than what they had. They failed and they needed something greater. And fans were so excited to see what that greater thing was that we waited hours to get tickets and hundreds of millions of dollars were spent to see how this was going to be fixed. Well, there's something far greater coming to fix something far worse than a movie. And we have that here. So let's turn our hearts and our minds to that. Because I don't know what 2021 holds. It could be way better than 2020. We could plateau. Who knows, it could be a lot worse. I don't know where you need to prioritize God in your life what you might be putting your hope in that's going to fail or what we all need to repent of. What I do know is that 2021 will not be perfect. You and I will not be perfect. But Jesus is. He has come. He died for those imperfections. He's coming again.